Good morning. My name is Nathan Knight. I'm one of the pastors at Restoration Church, so, so thankful that you're here this morning. And uh, I want to express my deep gratitude to you, Pastor Motes, to you, Cynthia, to the saints of Temple Baptist Church. Um, I feel a little bit like uh, David and his mighty men. You remember when he asked for water, he wanted water, and his mighty men just went out to, they went and went through the battle lines and came back and brought him water from Jerusalem. And you remember... I always thought it was strange that David didn't take the water. I think I would have felt we went to a lot of risk to get that water. Uh, but um, I feel that way towards you. Um, uh, we are incredibly grateful for the proclamation of the gospel for all of you and the way that you've stood for Jesus. Uh, the first Sunday that I moved to Washington, D.C., I came and sat, me and my wife sat right over there and listened to Pastor Moach preach. I met Sela that day. I met Cynthia that day. I'm sure I met Carl. Um, and so uh, I ride my bike by here almost every single day. Uh, every Sunday morning, I would come by and pray for this church as you gathered. And so what a joy it is to come together as one church today. And, uh, and I think, too, the history of our church started in this building, too. So uh, Restoration Church became a biblical church in this room. Uh, so a lot of history here, both in our church and in yours. So we love you. We thank God for you. Uh, and so uh, I hope to honor the words of Pastor Motes in exalting Christ in the next uh, moment of time in which we have. So let me pray for us as we open up to Second Corinthians 4. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that Christ has come and that he will come again. God, thank you for how that gospel went from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. That it got to us. May Christ be exalted in this time. And may He be exalted as we proclaim Him to others. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. Those are the words of Jim Elliott, missionary to the Aka Indians, who died believing that. And what he meant by it was that we cannot keep our lives. We're all going to die, just as Pastor Motes alluded to. We will all die. But if we give our lives up to Jesus, that is, if we die to ourselves, and we live to and for Him, we will gain a life that we cannot lose. Because Jesus has never lost a single one. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep, in order to gain what he cannot lose. And so this morning, I want to talk to us about giving up our lives. Giving up our lives to Jesus. Giving up our lives to one another. Giving up our lives to this community that we live in. In order that some may come to gain what they cannot lose. Gain that is everlasting life in and for Christ. So I want to talk to us this morning about the work of evangelism. This is a historic day, as we've mentioned, in the life of Restoration Church and in the life of Temple Baptist Church. And so as we move into this building on this day, as we move in, I want us to look out. As we move in, I want us to look out. Look out to the 10,000 American University students that will start classes right here in this week. To look out to the 7,000 plus residents that live right behind us in AU Park. To look out to the throngs that live in Friendship Heights and Cathedral Heights and Chevy Chase 
and in Tinleytown and other neighborhoods around us. To look out to them. To look out to the rich and to the poor. To look out to white and to black. To children and adults. To look out to liberals and conservatives. To look out to uh, singles and married. Children and adults. So many of them around us don't know that life. They don't know the glory of Christ. And those of us that are in Christ, God has chosen us that we might be vessels to display His glory. Acts 17, 26 and 27 says, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. And so in other words, Christian, you're not here by accident. You're not here by accident. He knows when two sparrows fall to the ground. He knows how many numbers of hair are on your head. And He knows and has ordained where you live. Therefore, if you are in Christ, He has brought you here in part to shine the light of the Gospel to a city in need. So here's what I'm going to do this morning. We're going to open up to 2 Corinthians 4. We're going to look from verse 7 down to the end of chapter 5, noting a couple things as we go. Two points this morning. 2 Corinthians 4, 7. The power for salvation is not in us. It's in Christ. It's in His Gospel. Second point, 2 Corinthians 5, 11 and 14. From that power we seek to persuade others compelled or constrained or controlled by the love of Christ. I've entitled this sermon this morning, The Lover's Appeal. Because that's what it is. The lover's appeal. And that's what we see in 2 Corinthians 6.11. It even says that. He says, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. And so let's take a look at that first point. The power of evangelism is not in you, but it's Christ in you. So uh, this letter is written to a church that Paul planted. It's no secret this church has had a lot of problems in its history. And he's shoring up those problems in this letter. He reminds them of the gospel that they originally believe. And he does so, take a look at verse 4 of 2 Corinthians 4. He does so by telling them that the God of this world, that's the devil, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. But then he says, conjuring up the image of God, the God that created the world in the book of Genesis, he says in verse 6, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the sight of the knowledge of the glory of God and the face of Christ. So in other words, the God of this world is powerful. He is keeping people from beholding the glory, the beauty of Christ. But the God of the Gospel is more powerful. Like He spoke the mountains into existence, the valleys, the trees into existence by mere words, so He has spoken into the hearts of those of us that believe that we might see and savor Christ. Behold Him, look at Him, enjoy Him. And He did it because He is powerful, He is mighty. And then Paul transitions in verse 7. And this is where I want us to meditate for a bit. He says in verse 7, but, shifting his argument from that, we, that is the redeemed, we have this treasure in jars of clay. The treasure, we know, is the glory of God in the face of Christ. You heard Pastor Mote say that. That's the treasure. That's the glory. That's what we're after. Look at Him. Behold Him. Enjoy Him. That's the treasure. And we have that treasure, he says, in jars of jars of clay. In other words, it's a treasure that most of the world cannot see. No matter how many times we can describe it to them, 
how passionate, how descriptive, unless God shines in their hearts to give them knowledge, they cannot have this treasure. But those of us in Christ, we have. Notice he says, we have, we possess it, we own, we enjoy the treasure of the sight of the glory of God in the face of Christ. It sits in our hearts every single moment of the day. God put it there, God keeps it there, but that treasure of the glory of Christ, it's hidden in a jar of clay. And here's what he means by that. He means that the greatest treasure in all of the world is inside here. It's inside our hearts. It's inside these weak and wounded bodies that we walk around in every single day. Our bodies are clay jars. Unimpressive, breakable molds. But inside is housed the greatest treasure in all of the world. So on the outside, the treasure doesn't look like much. But on the inside, it is glorious. It's beautiful. So if you were to walk into my office, if you were to come into my office, you would notice a number of things that appear very random to you. On my wall, I have blueprints from my grandparents' home that I spent my summers and my Christmases in that is now gone from our family. Good memories. But old paper blueprints. If you look on the other side, you'll notice there's uh, my granddad's old World War II uniform is sitting there. I've got my old baseball uniform sitting up on the wall. Uh, And I've got pictures that my kids drew for me hanging up on the wall. And I've got uh, literal rocks, seriously, rocks that people have brought in their travels back to me. And I have postcards, dozens and dozens and dozens of postcards that have been written to me by you, to me, when you're off and doing y'all's thing in Turkey and in Greece and wherever, just bringing letters back to me. Now, here's the thing about that. If we were to take all of those things and we were to go set them down in Tinley Circle, nobody would be interested in any of them, right? Nobody would. A week later, they would all be sort of rotten. Nobody would think about them. They would all be sort of gone. The, the uniform would be forgotten. had holes in it. The paper would be gone. In the eyes of the world, it's nothing. It's nothing. But for me, they're treasures. They're treasures. And that's what Paul is talking about here. On the outside, it appears to me as nothing. But on the inside, it's treasures. Paul is talking about it here. On the outside, we may not look like much. Some of us are tall, some of us are short. Some of us have degrees, some of us don't. More than likely, no biographer is going to write our story. We don't appear to be much, but the reality is on the inside, there's a treasure worth more than gold. And that treasure got there by the power of the same God that spoke the world into existence. We are literal temples of the living God, thus the name Temple Baptist Church. And that power is what Paul wants us to pay attention to in the work of evangelism. See, for the rest of this chapter and into chapter 5, Paul rehearses from chapter 4, verse 8, all the way down to the end of chapter 5, he rehearses all the ways that we are jars of clay. We are afflicted, he says, in every way. We live, we see there in verse 8, in a lot of perplexity. Amen? That is, we doubt We struggle to understand things. We sometimes have a hard time seeing the glory of God in the face of Christ. He says we're persecuted. He says we're struck down. We're always carrying around our weakness, this body of the death of Jesus, he says. In chapter 5, verse 1, look there, he says we live in tents. That is to say, we don't live in mansions. We don't live in castles. We don't live in yachts. 
We live in tents. Bodies and spirits that can be easily blown away. Chapter 5, verse 2, he says, We groan, longing to put on eternality. He says, We're burdened. We are jars of clay. We are weak. But, look back at verse 7. We have this treasure in a jar of clay for this purpose. Here he goes. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. And not us, but to Him. And guys, right here is the Christian distinctive. In the work of evangelism, we have to see this. right? The, the power for conversion does not lie in us, but in God. But in God. right? In his first letter, in Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, I think we could identify, this would describe all of us. In 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31, he says, For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. And then we need to ask the question, why? Why did He do it that way? So that no human being, that's me and you, might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Not in me. We are jars of clay. Beloved jars of clay. One day, Lord willing, glorified jars of clay. Right? God's going to do something with these bodies. That body that Pastor Moats buried yesterday will rise. We are jars of clay though. All one day we will be handsome, we'll be ripped up. Maybe I'll have some hair. Right. <laughs> but now we're weak. We suffer, we doubt, we struggle. But inside our hearts is the greatest treasure in all the world. And God did it that way so that we would know, so that all the world would know that the power that we have, those of us in Christ have, we, we would know that the power that we have, the treasure that we have, the glory we have is His, is the Lord. It's His power, His strength, His might, His energy, His force, His vigor, His voltage that is at work within us for His glory. It's not us. And so for instance, let me give you just a brief application here. If there is anything redeemable about this sermon, it didn't come from this guy. Right? It came from Him. It came from Him working through me to you. To you. And because of that, I have no reason to boast. Paul goes on to say to the Galatian churches, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and me to the world. And so, here's the application, guys. Here's the application for us in the work of evangelism. The power to give the treasure of Christ, of the Gospel, of forgiveness of sins, that power, the sight of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ, that power, for someone to believe, it's not yours. It's God's. It's God's. He's the one that gives the sight. He's the one that overcomes the evil one that blinds the minds of unbelievers. And greater is He, beloved, that is in you than he that is in the world. 
Some of you may have been taught that song when you were just a kid. I know I was. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Right? Little ones to Him belong. They are weak. But He is strong. And so, beloved, if you feel as though you can't do the work of evangelism because you're too weak, guess what? You're right. But Christ, who is in you, He can. He can. No weapon formed against Him shall stand. Trust Him for the strength to speak up to a lost and dying world that needs Him. And most importantly, trust Him for the power of belief in the One to whom you speak. We have this treasure in jars of clay, but God did it this way so as to show that the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us. Right? Romans 1.16 For I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation. The Gospel is where the power is. The power is not in us. It's in Him. It's in that Gospel that we speak. And God did it this way to show us how strong He is. To show the world how strong He is. The world shows its power by its external might, right? By tanks, by muscles, by money, by position. God shows His strength through weakness. So, own your weakness, beloved. Own your weakness and trust the power of the Gospel to save people. For the longest time, many of you know, I've told this story before. For the longest time, I swore that my SAT score was going to the grave with me. I was very ashamed of it. I thought that if, I, if people knew what I got on my SAT scores, they wouldn't respect me. They wouldn't listen to me. They would think that I was just not real bright. On a single test, I scored a 760. That was the best I did. If you don't know, you get like 400 points for just signing your name. <laughs> I mean, it's bad, y'all. <laughs> and here's what God told me when I was trying to hide that from people. God spoke me in, spoke into me about that. And God said to me, Nathan, do you honestly believe that scores define you? Do you think that scores define your work? Do you think that your SAT score will define my ability to use you from my name and my mouth? Go tell people that score, he said to me in essence. And then preach the Gospel and watch me work. It's not your intellect, Nathan. It's not how smart you are. It's my power. And if you trust me, Nathan, this is, if you trust me, if you hold fast to the Gospel, if you speak the Gospel, you speak it up, I'm going to use you. It's not about you. And do you know how freeing that is? Do you know how freeing it is? I don't have to hide behind that any longer. I don't have to hide behind my weaknesses anymore. I can just throw them out there. Because I don't have to hide behind it. Because the, the power for salvation points to Jesus, right? He is the author of salvation. So listen, there are more degrees in this room than Fahrenheit. And listen, I'm not intimidated by any of you. <laughs> for two reasons. One, because y'all are a piece of work too. All right? I've learned that. All right? 
But the second reason I'm not intimidated by you is because I believe in the power of the Gospel. I believe in the God of the Gospel. And I believe that if I can speak that to you in humility, that things can change in your life and in mine. I've found that the more that I know in that, live in that reality, the more effective I am for the glory of Christ. The more freeing that aspect is. You, know, you want to know when the most freeing aspect of my life is? This may surprise you. You want to know the freeing, I don't know if Pastor Moses would agree with me on this, but the most freeing time for me in my week, no kidding, is the few minutes before I walk into this pulpit. That may surprise some of you. Why would I say that? Because I don't have to change you. I have no pressure, I feel no pressure to try to change you. My job is so freeing, is just open up this Bible, point people to Jesus, just like Pastor Moses said, for 21 years, and let Him do the work. And so I'm free. Do you know how many times I've tried, some of you I've had meetings with, and I've tried to change you. It doesn't work, right? But when I just let God do the work, just open up the Bible, just point them to Jesus, plead with Him to follow Jesus, know Jesus, love, follow Jesus, that's when work actually gets done. And so, beloved, it's true. You're weak. You don't have all the answers and neither do I. You and I probably can't answer the questions that some of your lost friends are asking. You're not Tim Keller. You're not R.C. Sproul. Right? You're not Francis Schaeffer. And not only that, verse 8 says you probably have a lot of perplexions yourself. But listen, none of that matters if you treasure Christ and the power that is in Him. The power is not in having all the answers. The power is in the Gospel. So own your weakness so that the power of the Gospel can move to those that do not believe. The more that you do that, the more that you own your weakness, the more confidence you have in the might of the Messiah to save, the greater evangelist you will be. So beloved, when we preach the Gospel, we stand in the middle of Arlington Cemetery and call the dead to live. That's what we do. That's what evangelism is. And God is the one. He's the only one that can make them rise up. It's our job to preach. It's His job to rise them up. We call the dead to live. It's a privilege to call them up. It's a joy to call them up. And as we move in here, we look out to this community, pleading with God to do something in their lives. Guys, they don't know it, but they need us. Not because of anything in us, in and of ourselves, but because of who is in us. What AU Park and American University needs from you and I, beloved, is to own your weakness and point people to the gold of the Gospel. And as we go, second point, we go controlled by the love of Christ. Take a look down there in chapter 5, verse 6. After talking about the fact that we are jars of clay, that our outer self is wasting away, that we're tense, uh, that God is showing His power through weak vessels. Paul concludes something we need to hear in evangelism. Verse 6, he says, so we are always, underline that, always of good courage. You see it again in verse 8. Yes, we are of good courage. We need to hear this in evangelism, right? Because evangelism is hard. It's hard, right? Courage is not the absence of fear. It's doing the right thing in the presence of it. We always can have good courage to speak the gospel because we know that while we are jars of clay, God is the one that's going to use that weakness to manifest His glory when we appeal to the gospel. Then we get to verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. He talks about the judgment seat of Christ in verse 10. Verse 11, knowing the fear of the Lord, knowing that judgment is on its way, 
We persuade others. Slide down to the end of the chapter in verse 20. We are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us. And then we see Paul doing it. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So, we are ambassadors of Christ, messengers, dignitaries, representatives of the King and the Kingdom of God. While here on the earth, God is making His appeal through you, through us. Therefore, in good courage, we must seek to persuade others. Persuade others. While salvation is the work of God, that does not mean that we don't use rhetoric, don't use logic, don't try to turn people. We must seek to persuade them. Jude says to contend for the faith. Peter says to give a reason for the hope that is within you. We are not merely post office employees. In other words, we're not just delivering the mail. We're knocking on the door going, read this mail, believe this mail, please. But we do this, this persuasion in a certain way. 2 Corinthians 5.14 Trusting in the power of Christ seeking to persuade and encourage, 5.14, for the love of Christ controls us. That's what controls us in the work. But don't miss this, because he says why. Why does the love of Christ controls us? Because we, that's the church, have concluded. Beloved, have you concluded? Decided, determined, staked our lives upon the fact that one has died for all. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. Gospel, in other words. That's why we're controlled by the love of Christ. Because of the Gospel. So, in the work of evangelism, we own our weakness, we trust the power within us, so that with good courage, we seek to persuade others, we make an appeal as ambassadors, we don't just deliver the mail, we want them changed, but we do so in a particular way. We persuade others in love because it is the love of Christ that controls us. It's love that got us to the doorstep. It's love that sustains us. It's love that's going to lead us home. We make a lover's appeal to the lost. We contend, we advance, we push, controlled by the love of Christ. Evangelism is a lover's appeal. Guys, you miss that? You miss the heart of the Gospel. A recent poll of people that describe themselves as practicing Christians was given this statement. Quote, It is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share that same faith. 47% of people that describe themselves as practicing Christians, they were of the age of millennials, 47% of them said that statement was true. Another statement. Quote, if someone agrees with, disagrees with you, it means that they're judging you. 40% of Christian millennials agreed with that. In other words, more than 40% of these confessing Christians thinks it's a terrible idea to do evangelism. It's almost half. And the pollsters have their reasons why. Here's my reason why I think they're saying that. My guess is they think that evangelism is a way to sort of change people's politics. They think it's a way to change people's personal preferences to their personal preferences. That's how they're seeing it. 
It's none of those things. Evangelism is none of those things. Evangelism is an appeal to love people with the truth of the Gospel. Evangelism is loving people. And of course, the opposite is also true. To not evangelize those that don't trust Christ is to not love them. We are controlled by the love of Christ because of the Gospel. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. 1 John 4.10 In this is love. Not that we loved God, but He loved us and sent His only Son to be a propitiation for our sins. This is the Gospel. The great hope that we have. Jesus Christ living a sinless life. Dying an atoner. Atoning sinner's death on the cross. Atoning for the sins of all those that would believe in Him. Was buried and resurrected on the third day. That all those that repent and believe on Him, they might be forgiven of their sin and be come into heaven to live with God forever. It's a lover's appeal to help them know that, love that, follow that, treasure that, walk in light of that. And so we're controlled by that love to go and call others into that love. The call to sinners to repent and believe on Christ alone for salvation. Guys, it's no rude intrusion. We've got to get that clear in our minds. It's a gracious appeal to life eternal. So we are controlled by the love of Christ and the work of evangelism. We are not controlled by guilt or shame to go and evangelize. No. We are not controlled by mere religion to evangelize. We are not controlled by party politics or personal preferences in evangelism. We are controlled by the love of Christ. That's what takes us out to the neighbors and the nations. The one that loved us and gave himself up for us so that we might live through him. One caveat here. We're not caveat. One maybe response to this when you hear me saying this. Some people, you're thinking about people that you're sharing the gospel with and they're going, it don't seem loving. In other words, you know that they know, or at least they believe, it doesn't seem as though they're, you're making a lover's appeal. And so we're tempted to just not evangelize because it doesn't seem loving to that person that is lost. But guys, every single one of us that believe thought the same thing before we believed. Isn't that what the Bible says? We were all enemies of God. Right? Children of wrath. The only way we came to know the love of God in Christ Jesus was because somebody in love told it to us. And then we loved Him. So we can't wait for other people to know that we're trying to love them before we share with them. Yes, build relationships, but at the end of the day, we have no promise they'll ever know that our motive is love. But that can't stop us from calling them to Christ out of love. So whether or not they see our love, we must call them to the Gospel because to do so would be unloving. I mean, think about it, guys. How unloving is it to know the way to eternal life and not tell somebody? Just because you don't want to seem awkward. Own your weakness. Trust in the power of Christ. Speak up in love. Paul says in 1, Corinthians, or 1 Timothy 1.5, the aim of our charge is love. That issues from a pure heart and a sincere faith. That's our aim, right? Our aim is love. Is love. We're controlled by the love. We seek to persuade people to trust Christ out of love for love. That's the best way we love our neighbor. And get this, when you love people with the Gospel that don't know Him, 1 Corinthians 13.8, i got a promise for you. We're going to sing about it later. Love never 
fails. How about that? Do you want to have confidence in evangelism? If you love people, speak the truth to them, you can't fail. How great is that? I mean, amen, right? I mean, that's, that's good news. That no matter what, if we're loving people the truth of the gospel, if we're loving them, we can't fail. That's successful evangelism. Successful evangelism, calling people to the gospel, calling them to turn from their sin, trust in Jesus, loving them with that truth, and leaving the results to God. Successful evangelism is not in the fruit of evangelism. You can't control that, right? We already talked about that. You're calling the dead dead to live. Only God can do that. Successful evangelism is calling people to the gospel in love and having them to come out. And you leave those results to God. So we have nothing to lose. And so if you are in Christ today, beloved, you are in Christ because someone spoke the gospel to you. You have new life. You have treasure in jars of clay. Because someone spoke up. And so I wonder, who might be in this room next year at this time because you spoke the Gospel to them? It has been said that the next Billy Graham could be lying on the street drunk right now. But over the course of the next year, you could speak to them. Call them to Jesus. And they would go on singing, as we did this morning, how great thou art. Just under a hundred years ago, a woman by the name of Anne Gann had a relationship with a woman by the name of Catherine. Her name is Catherine Giles. And Anne Gann spoke the gospel to Catherine. She told something Catherine had never heard before, that she was a sinner. She'd never heard that before. And so Anne then pleaded with her to know Jesus. And Catherine Giles trusted in Christ. Catherine Giles married a guy by the name of Enoch. And Catherine told Enoch the Gospel, called him to it. Enoch trusted in Jesus. Born again, was baptized. It's a true story. Catherine and, uh, Catherine and Enoch then had a son who they named Enoch, Enoch Jr. And they told the Gospel to Enoch. And Enoch believed. And Enoch met this beautiful woman by the name of Donna. And Catherine told Donna the Gospel. And Donna believed. Enoch and Donna, Enoch Jr. and Donna had, got married and they had a son named David. And they spoke the Gospel to David. And David believed. And Enoch and Donna spoke the Gospel to their son Nathan. And I stand here before you appealing to you to love Jesus. Somebody told me the Gospel. Anne Gann. I can't wait to meet her. Never knew this woman. She lived many years ago. But because she spoke the Gospel to my grandmother, I stand here in front of you today pleading with you to know the Gospel. To love Jesus. To follow Him with all of your life. And so friend, if you've not done that, If you're here this morning and you haven't trusted in Jesus, come. Let me appeal to you to know and love Jesus and follow Him forever. If you want to do that, come talk to me after service. I'll be standing somewhere up here. Come find me. Or talk to the person that brought you. But don't leave here without considering the loving appeal of Christ to be born again. And for the rest of us at Restoration Church, I appeal to you 
that as we move in, we look out. Appealing to people to know Jesus and love Jesus forever. That this building would be so full, we are forced to plant churches. I'm looking at it right now, going, my goodness, what are we going to do? Praise the Lord. Thank God for Christ. Don't lose sight. I'm going to stop with this. Don't lose sight of what Paul says in the second part of verse 15 of chapter 5. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him. We do the work of evangelism for the glory of Christ, and not ourselves. And so let's pray that we would do that. Lord Jesus, we praise You that You have come and that You will come again. We praise You, Jesus, that You have made a way for salvation to all that believe. And we praise You, God, that You spoke the Gospel, Jesus, to Your disciples who spoke it to others, who spoke it to others, and it got to us. In love, may we spread out all over this city and to the nations at large that they would know the love of Christ and worship You forever. May we live in that good courage, believing that the power is in You, it's not in us. Going with love in our hearts. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.